Welcome to the Field Goals Podcast. I'm Brandon Schultz, and it is the start of the 2020 offseason for the Seattle Seahawks for the entire NFL now that the Super Bowl is over. And we want to start this off by talking about the salary cap. And to do that, I'm bringing on Field Goals contributor, John P. Gilbert. John, welcome to the show. First time having you on. Yeah, no, I appreciate you having me on and excited to be here today. Yeah, well, I'm excited to to kind of kick things off in the offseason by looking at how much of the Seahawks money that you and I get to spend in the offseason. And uh, because, you know, obviously John Schneider is going to spend it. But, you know, we can we can at least look at uh, some of the players on the team and say, hey, this is who we want to keep. Maybe there's some potential guys that we could see leaving. And just to give you know Seahawks fans a little bit of an idea of what to expect in these upcoming months. All right. So jumping right into things, if you were to get on overthecap.com right now, look at the Seattle Seahawks uh, or any other salary cap site, whatever you want to look at, it's going to bring up that they have about 50, 51 million dollars in cap space. Now, that's before they lay aside some uh, some money. They're going to need about a million and a half to fill out the roster. They only have 48 players under contract as of right now. You have to have 51 counting towards the cap. Beyond that, it doesn't matter um, nearly as much because they're just new players are just replacing older players. Uh, anyways, we need about a million and a half for that. We need about three or four million for an IR reserve. And then they will need a few million dollars just to cover the cost of their rookie contracts. They're the 2020 cap hits for the players that are drafted in April based on the five picks they hold, plus the projection of three comp picks that they're probably going to get. They're going to need another three, three and a half million, depending on how many times they trade down, where they finally end up picking, because it's obviously those those picks at the top of the draft are the ones that are more expensive. All in all, before any cap casualties, which I'm assuming we'll get to at some point, uh, we're probably looking at, you know, is somewhere in the 40 to 42 million dollars in cap space for next season. 40 to 42 million. And yes, like you said, we, we probably will. You know, the, every offseason, there's guys that we kind of expect that may get cut. There's guys that we don't expect. I'm curious in your mind if there's any guys who jump out that John Schneider might be considering as potential cap casualties to get that number up from about 40 to 42 million. I could definitely see them doing something. Ed Dixon. I mean, he's the one that a lot of fans they're upset with. You know, he was uh, he was an older tight end when they signed him two years ago. He had a quality 10 games at the end of 2018 and then in the playoffs. Uh, and then obviously was on injured reserve at the start of the year, came off injured reserve, went back on injured reserve 48 hours later. So didn't play at all during the season, has a good size cap hit uh, for 2020 of $4 million, a little bit less than that because of his, his per game roster bonuses don't count, but they would save $3 million by releasing him. I could easily see that happening. And the other big thing is you've got Justin Britt. He's set to make, you know, set to count, excuse me, over 11 million against the cap. He's got, you know, an eight and a quarter million dollar base salary, and he'll be coming back off of a torn ACL. So the question becomes, you know, do we want to commit eight and a quarter million to a guy who may not be ready for the start of the season? You know, hopefully his recovery goes well, his rehab goes well, and he's ready to go. Or, you know, can we allocate that money somewhere else? Um, it's a decision that the team will have to make. Releasing Brit would save uh, about $7.3 million off the cap. It's a little bit less than if you someone goes online and looks at Track or looks at over the cap, simply because it's going to be, there's going to be a $1.2 million cap hold on Brit because of an injury waiver or injury, released injured designation until he signs with another team if they were to release him. You know, I anticipate they will. 
but that doesn't mean the team will. We have no idea the dynamics going on inside what's going on there. Um, you know, I expect that they will, but that, you know, they do things I don't expect them to all the time. So. Well, Justin Britt is one of, you know, kind of a, a favorite of Russell Wilson, and you, you do kind of want that chemistry between the center and the quarterback. But, you know, that kind of move, it wouldn't be unprecedented for John Schneider because really that's how Richard Sherman left the Seahawks. No, absolutely. Very similar situation. Um, and even, you know, not just at the center position, it wouldn't be the first time that they would have made a change. I mean, it was, you know, the when Max Unger was shipped off to New Orleans, part of the reason was because he was, he consistently had health issues. He was not available on a regular basis while he was with Seattle. Now he got to New Orleans and stayed healthy all the time, it seemed. Uh, but, you know, it's, it would not be the first time during Russell Wilson's career that his center uh, was, you know, released or traded or otherwise disposed of during the off season following, you know, a season in which they missed time due to injury. Right. And I think we might look at that and go, oh, yeah, but if you get rid of Justin Britt, you have Joey Hunt, who is a fine backup center, but he's also going to be a free agent. You know, Ethan Posick, he's had health issues. They don't have a guy who's set at center. But yeah, like you mentioned, that didn't stop them before when they got rid of Max Unger. There there was no guy who was, you know, the heir apparent at center. No, absolutely. I mean, they they went in, they were like, you know what? All right, we've got this guy. He's been to the Pro Bowl. He's been an All-Pro. We'll trade him, you know, whatever. We'll deal with that, you know, when we get to it. And then it took him a full season of dealing with, you know, the, the 2015 center situation before they finally settled on Britain 2016. And, you know, he's had things locked down until week eight of this past season. I, I just don't know if I want the, those questions in my mind. <laughs> Thinking back to 2015, holy smokes. But, uh, you know, I, I do want to, I'm curious. Okay, so let's say they do make some of those moves, kind of open up some on the offensive side of the ball, because I, I am a little bit interested in how the salary, because looking back, it always seems to me like the Seahawks and John Schneider, they want to try and balance the offense versus the defense. And obviously, Russell Wilson uh, getting the the mega contract last off season, it it definitely bumped up their offensive spending in 2019 versus their defensive spending. And I'm I'm curious if they balance it out about how much space you would you would expect on either side of the football. Balancing it out right now, uh, you know, for 2020, they have allocated 92 million on the offensive side of the ball and 54 million on the defensive side of the ball. Now, obviously, there's some big name defensive guys who are set to be free agents. I mean, there's obviously a couple of offensive free, you know, guys who are set to be free agents who could make significant money as well. And George Fant, Jermaine Effetti. But the, you know, right now, the the offense is set to go into this, you know, if things were to start today, we'd be looking at an offense that's getting allocated $38 million more million than the defense. So uh, definitely some more opportunity to spend on the defensive side of the ball. And I suppose that's good news because... You mentioned probably the the biggest names in free agency for the Seahawks are on the defensive side of the ball, specifically the defensive line and Jadevian Clowney, you know, potentially upwards of, of 20 million, I think, is what we can expect. Jaron Reed is an interesting case in terms of salary that uh, I don't know if we know exactly what to expect because he did have the shortened season due to the suspension and obviously having a 10 plus sack season the year before, you know, had he hit free agency after that season, I think he would have had you know a significantly higher payday. And I, I am curious to know if, you know, there's still going to be that demand out there for him, or if he's going to end up taking a one year deal to kind of see if he can get back to that same level. I think he'll really have a choice. And I think the choice will come down to a one year deal 
that's kind of a prove it, you know, show us 2018 wasn't a fluke. Uh, or there will be, I think there will be deals on the table that are lucrative, that have the, you know, the APY, the, the size that he's looking for, but that will be built in such a way, you know, he might sign a four year, $52 million contract or a five year, you know, $70 million contract with some team, but they'll have an out after a year or two where they can get out where it's effectively Mm. a one year contract for 12 or 13 million or a two year contract, uh, you know, for 22 or 24 million, somewhere in there. That's my guess, you know, because it only takes one GM to say, you know what, he, he did get double digit sacks in 2018. It's not guaranteed because he didn't do it again in 2019, but let's, let's put it together and give him a shot. And I think somebody will sign off on that lottery ticket. Well, and it does only take one GM to offer a huge contract. And so that's why I think Seahawks fans are concerned with Jadevian Clowney and his ability to hit the market this off season. The Seahawks aren't going to franchise tag him. That was part of the deal for him coming to the Seahawks. You know, just how big of a deal could he be looking at? And is that something that the Seahawks would even be willing to compete with? I, you know, it's it's hard to imagine them competing with it simply because they weren't willing to pay the money to keep Frank Clark around. I mean, Clark, you know, double digit sacks in his mid 20s, in his prime. I mean, he had another, you know, a solid season in Kansas City, eight sacks during the regular season, five during the three game postseason run. So it's, you know, my initial instinct is I can't see them, you know, jumping in and being excited about paying the the 20, 21 million dollars a year on the low end that it would probably take to keep Clowney. But on the flip side, Clowney's a much better player against the run, I believe, you know, compared to Clark. And I think I think that for Pete Carroll and wanting to improve the run defense and wanting to stop the run and make the opponent one dimensional. Uh, I think I think he can justify to himself stepping up and being involved in the in the bidding process at twenty two, twenty three million. And whether, you know, that actually happens or not, we we have to obviously wait and see. But the Joel Corey, former agent, um, you know, his his belief is that, you know, Clowney Clowney wants to play for a contender. That's what he's told everyone. But that doesn't mean he's not going to use the bidding from non-contenders to as leverage with the contenders, you know, right. if, if I, you know, if I'm playing, if I've got two offers and one, they're identical, one's Miami and one's Seattle. Yeah. He's probably going to end up in Seattle. But if I've got, you know, if, if Miami's willing to go 25, 26, 27 million a year and Seattle's stuck at that 20 number, then, you know, that weighs things differently. And then there's 30 other teams that he can bargain with in terms of creating a leverage bid mm-hmm. to try and force Seattle's hand up a little bit more. So, you know, yeah, he wants to play for a contender. I'd love for him to be around and, you know, d- as disruptive in 2020 as he was in 2019. Uh, but I just, I, I have a hard time picturing the team going in at the level that I think some teams will go in on him for, because he's the one big name, huge pass rusher that can't be tagged. And we know for a fact we'll absolutely hit the the free agent market. Well, you mentioned two names on the offensive line and those biggest names being George Fant and Jermaine Effetti. It's very intriguing to me. I, I don't know if I can remember a player quite like Jermaine Effetti has been on Twitter with the the contract negotiation and willing to, you know, go to bat for himself against People who, you know, people like Joe Fan on Twitter who you know, tweet out that he could, that I, I think it was, 
Jeff Schwartz yes, said that Jeff he could make Schwartz, 12, yes, who announced that, said that he could make twelve million dollars, and yeah. and Jermaine Fetty seemed to take exception to that. But uh, I I don't know twelve that seems that seems pretty good. Yeah, I mean it's it's certainly in the ballpark of what I think he's going to get. It's actually kind of on the low end. Um, I would expect he you know he's not the premier right tackle on the free agent market this year by any stretch. But he is one of just a handful of young tackles who will hit the market, who have been multi-year starters with a track record of staying healthy. And you know, our former top picks, which, as stupid as it sounds, you know, a first-round pick who puts up a bad performance has a very good chance of you know outperforming a seventh-round pick who played decently over the course of their rookie contract. And I'm not saying by any stretch that Effetti was bad. He certainly wasn't great. He, you know, he wasn't Pro Bowl level. He wasn't all pro level. He had moments where he looked fantastic. And then he had moments where, you know, the, the false starts and everything, it just never all came together consistently for him. And, you know, to see that, you know, a player who wasn't drafted early is going to get a smaller contract simply because they weren't drafted early four years ago. It seems crazy. But I think as we watch, you know, we're going to see, Conklin is that uh, of the Titans. He's the big target. He's the yeah. one that you know teams want. He's going to be the one. You know, whether he'll push Lane Johnson's eighteen million a year average salary for to become the highest paid offensive lineman in the NFL, I think I don't think he'll quite make it there. But I could easily see him getting sixteen or seventeen million. And if there are you know two or three or four teams that got missed out on Conklin because they didn't want to go that high, and if Eddie's sitting there at twelve and then thirteen or possibly fourteen, all of a sudden that starts. You know, that psychology of the sale where they've been bumped to 17 and lost out, you know, 13 or 14 looks a lot lower. And I I just I have a hard time envisioning Fetty ending up somewhere other than that. Well, that's what I, you know, it, it's kind of fun to, to think about it just in in Jermaine, you know, through the eyes of Jermaine Fetty, because I feel like. During the season, Seahawks fans were saying to themselves, oh, you know, if we could get Jermaine Effetti, if we could keep him, you know, I, I don't really want to keep him. But if we did, you know, six, seven million dollars a year, it's it's. I feel like that's, you know, it was numbers like that that I heard thrown around during the season. And then you get to the offseason and you hear people starting to say, oh, nine or ten and and Effetti's out there saying, oh, that you know, that's too low. And, and now we're talking about 12 as possibly being low. No, and it's, you know, I've. I've been expecting, you know, these are the numbers I've kind of been expecting. Um, you know, obviously, you know, more casual fans, people who don't pay as much of attention to, you know, the market and what's going on, obviously, maybe not what they're looking for. So I think it is a big sticker shock for a lot of fans um, and the realization that, you know, someone that they view him as potentially the worst, you know, <laughs> tackle in the history of the NFL, obviously the worst right tackle in football in 20, you know, 19 is their opinion. Um, I think they're extremely surprised, but you know, for those who have been watching, I mean, for, for those who pay close attention, I mean, I remember when they de- declined the fifth year option, um, you know, there were a lot of observers who were like, you know, that's, that's kind of a couple million less than he's probably going to sign for when he hits right. free agency in 11 months. Like, what are you guys doing here? But it's the, uh, you know, the, the team's kind of they've kind of missed the mark, I think, um, regarding offensive line valuation at times in the past. And it feels like whether that that move back last spring when they declined the option, whether that was a move that, you know, missed the mark or whether it was something that they really felt that he wouldn't get the 12 million that, you know, Jeff Schwartz and others are starting to believe that he makes. And when he, I think when he finally signs the deal and a lot of fans see how much he ends up getting that that it's going to shock a lot of people. 
I don't think we're going to expect to see him in Seattle if we're if we're talking numbers like that. And you brought up the idea that the the team declined the option. I think it was a ten million dollars. Ten point three, ten point three five. I forget the specifics, but yeah, it was in that ballpark. So what about the idea of George Fant? Is he a guy who the Seahawks could look to keep at a, a much smaller number? Or do you think that he showed enough to NFL suitors you know, filling in that one game for Dwayne Brown, especially against the San Francisco 49ers? Did that show other teams enough that they might be intrigued uh, with George Fant? I think there's no doubt that teams will be intrigued with Fant. He started the game at the end of the year, but he also started earlier in the year. Uh, you know, Brown was injured against the Saints. He hurt his arm, uh, his biceps, and he missed the game against. He played it against Arizona, and then he played against the Rams. Uh, but then he missed the next two games, and fans started both those games. He had a, you know, it was an ugly game um, going up against Miles Garrett uh, against Cleveland, and then he had. Uh, against the Ravens, a decent performance. And then he got to add, you know, his his start week 17 on top of that, on top of all the tight end snaps. And I think he's put together enough film. He's got enough on tape and he's got the athleticism and the the measurables, the weight, the height, the arm length, the, you know, the 40s time. I think there's a team will give him a shot, much like we saw the the Steelers had a backup tackle, their sixth lineman Hubbard a couple of years ago, who mm. was in a very similar situation, had played about a thousand snaps over the course of his rookie contract, but never became a starter on the Steelers line simply because of how deep they were. Goes to Cleveland. Cleveland gives him a five year, seven and a half million dollar per year contract. Um, he hasn't been great, but it's been a contract where Cleveland could theoretically, you know, move on from him without too much dead money this offseason. And I think that's kind of the deal the the fan finds himself in. Some team will give him a contract. They'll give him a, you know, a second tier starting contract that will pay him a good chunk of money over the first two years, whether it's, you know, a five year, $40 million contract with 20 million guaranteed that 20 million mostly paid in the first two years. And if he's, if he ends up being starter material, then they've got a good deal. They've got to tackle for five years and 40 million or five years and 50 million or whatever it is. And if he's not, then they can move on in 2021 or 2022 and look for someone who can man that position for them going forward. But I think that's what I think is going to happen with Fant. And I, I, my feeling is that he's simply going to price himself out of the Seahawks market, uh, you know, much like a Fetty. That's, you know, I'd love to see him back. He's one of my favorite players. But uh, I, I don't think it's going to happen because of the money. A lot to think about for John Schneider in the offseason. And coming up after the break, John, I want to talk to you about an article you did this past weekend commenting on Russell Wilson wanting to open up the offense based on some of his comments leading up to the Super Bowl. Let's talk about that after the break. Talking to John Gilbert of Field Goals, contributor there, and we're talking about Russell Wilson and leading up to the Super Bowl. He was on NBC Sports talking to Chris Sims, Mike Florio, and he you got the idea that maybe uh, Russell Wilson was suggesting that maybe the Seahawks need to throw the ball a little bit more. I know that was a, a talk of a little bit of the offseason. Well, and we've even heard Russell Wilson say in the past that he'd like to go more up tempo. And I feel like that's kind of what he was saying in uh, in this interview with uh, on NBC Sports. What was your takeaway from the interview, John? You know, it just I don't 
I don't know if I want to use the word frustrated, but I think I think Russ looks around. He sees the offense that he's running compared to the offense that teams like the Rams or teams like the the Chiefs are running. And, you know, he says, look, well, you know, we've got me. Uh, I'm you know, he obviously his goal is to be the greatest in the history of the game. Uh, he's obviously if he's not the best quarterback in the NFL right now, he's obviously very, very close to the top. There's only a couple of names that you could put there with him. Um, and then they've got weapons, you know, they've got Metcalf, they've got Lockett, they, they've had, they had Baldwin in the past. And I think he's saying, look, we can, we're losing games because we're not scoring enough points. You know, let's, let's score more points. And the way to do that is for us to play an offense that, you know, that relies on the playmakers and the, the skill position guys we have who, who are dangerous. So let's, we've got them. Let's take advantage of them. Well, and one of the things that you pointed to in your article at fieldgoals.com was the numbers on first and second down, the percentages, uh, the sack rates uh, on first and second down versus what the Seahawks tend to take. And obviously their sack numbers on first down are below league average because they do tend to run the ball more on first down rather than throw it. But uh, those third down sack numbers uh, is significant difference compared to league average and even second down. Well, and even those those numbers those aren't just, that's not all plays. That's only passing plays. Mm. So the, the first down where they're better than league average, it doesn't even consider oh. their running. So the, the fact that their sacks on first down, uh, the, the sack rate that only looks when the Seahawks are passing on first down, they are sacked less than average compared to all other NFL teams. When those teams are passing on first down. Well, so, and I and suppose it, that that kind of makes sense because on first down you'd have your big, your, you know, your heavies up in the middle that probably are are aren't as good as at chasing down Russell Wilson as you know a potential you know a second uh, third down type uh, uh, pass defense. No, absolutely. I mean, you know, if you've got if you've got Brandon Mebane in a defensive tackle on first down, you're it's going to be a whole lot easier to throw the ball compared to having um, you know Aaron Donald in on third down. So right. it's just. First down league wide across the league, quarterbacks are sacked less on first down compared to third down because there are run stuffing defensive linemen on the field. Well, the Seahawks will have Russell Wilson for many years to come. And I'm kind of curious at how his salary looks for the Seahawks moving forward, because one of the things that I I think comes up a lot and we heard it again this season because Patrick Mahomes ends up leading the Chiefs to the Super Bowl, and he's making a significantly smaller portion of the salary cap than some of the top quarterbacks, even Jimmy Garoppolo. I don't know if Garoppolo uh, was above that 13% that you tend to hear that, uh, you know, no no team has won uh, with a quarterback making over that 13% mark, I think, and Russell Wilson at 14% of the team's cap last year. He's at 15% coming up in 2020. So I'm I'm kind of curious of of how it looks going forward if if you even think that matters when it comes to Super Bowl offenses. I mean, to it obviously matters because if you're spending, you know, Patrick Mahomes had I think it was five point two million was his cap number this year. I mean, there's no question that if the the Seahawks had a 2019 or you know if. if you know, Russell Wilson was on the books for you know five point two million in twenty nineteen. It's going to be there would have been an extra twenty million dollars to go around. They, right. You know, it's an extra receiver, it's an extra defensive lineman, an extra offensive lineman. You know, maybe Frank Clark stays around. Who knows? Um, so the, I mean, there's no doubt that having a quarterback on a rookie contract is an advantage. 
Um, you know, it's, it's, you can't deny that, but I don't think it makes it impossible for a team to win the Super Bowl with a quarterback on the bill, you know, on a big contract. I mean, we just saw the 49ers, they were seven minutes away from a, a Super Bowl title with Jimmy Garoppolo, a quarterback who two years ago, the 49ers made Garoppolo the highest paid quarterback in the NFL, making him the highest paid player in the NFL. I mean, he signed a five year, $137.5 million contract. And when he signed for $27.5 million a year, that was the highest average annual salary in the NFL. Mm. Um, So, you know, they did that and they were able to make it to the Super Bowl. Yes, they had the advantage of having been bad for several years and having had a lot of cap space that they rolled over for several years. But I think that kind of shows that you can have a quarterback on a big contract go to the Super Bowl. It's just a matter of you've got to put the pieces around them and you know, is it easier? Absolutely. But that's you. You're still going to have, you know, the Hawks with Russell Wilson on a big contract are going to have a better shot at winning the Super Bowl than the Hawks without a Russell Wilson. Let me put it that that's way. True. <laughs> <laughs> well, and it is kind of interesting looking at the San Francisco 49ers and just how they structured that Jimmy Garoppolo contract, because as I look at over the he was 20 percent of the 49ers salary cap. And then just this last year, it dropped down to 10 But then in 2020, it bounces up to that 13% number. So that's kind of, I think, where teams like to be. And I think with Russell Wilson, I think as you go down the road, too, as the salary cap increases and Russell Wilson's contract stays the same, I I think it'll at least help the team in the ability to uh, sign, you know, have a little bit more space to sign free agents. And because, yeah, you look at the Chiefs and they are going to be strapped for cash coming up in this upcoming season in 2020. You look at Frank Clark, you know, his cap number is over 20 million. You got they got Sammy Watkins. Tyreek Hill has got a big number. Tyron Matthew, you know, that, and, and Eric Fisher, their offensive lineman. And then they're probably going to look at trying to pay Patrick Mahomes going forward, because if they do it now, you know, they can kind of spread out. The cost of his contract, I think, a little bit better, but uh, I know obviously uh, that's going to be a negotiation between the Chiefs and Patrick Mahomes. We'll we'll see if they can even get that done. But one of the things that came up, John, is I was talking to Dana O'Gorman. She's in the Chiefs area, so she's she's tied into kind of that the sports talk uh, going around uh, Kansas City. And one of the things that she mentioned was salary cap issues that the Chiefs are going to find themselves in. Travis Kelsey, who another guy who's making over $10 million, if he could potentially be a casualty or a trade chip for the Chiefs moving forward, looking to open up some of their cap space to keep guys like Patrick Mahomes to uh, to have a little bit more salary cap room. And it was that was curious to me because of what the Seahawks did and trading for Jimmy Graham. We talked a little bit about that in the first segment. Could this be the type of guy that the Seahawks look at and say, hey, you know, for $11 million or whatever his contract is moving forward, because I know when you make a trade, uh, I think you're only looking at base salary. So that could be kind of an affordable option for the Seahawks to look at at tight end if they do decide to get rid of Ed Dixon. Yeah, I I mean, it would help the Chiefs, you know, salary cap situation. They are looking at, you know, uh, it's it's going to be tight for them going forward. But I, I have a hard time picturing them moving on from Kelsey and simply yeah. because for a couple of reasons, one is obviously, um, I mean, Andy Reed comes from the Mike Holmgren school of, you know, offensive coaching 
it's, you know, in Green Bay, they had Keith Jennings. In San Francisco, Holmgren had Brent Jones. You know, tight end is a position that Andy Reid loves to use, and Travis Kelsey is a weapon. Now, that said, um, I mean, Kelsey is 30, he's, so he's not young. Um, he's obviously closer to, I mean, the end of his career, most likely, than the beginning. And if someone puts together a package that's attractive and enticing, um, I could see them moving. You know, would that involve a first round pick? Would that involve, a, you know, a first round pick and a player? Would that be, you know, something similar to what, you know, the Seahawks gave up to get Jimmy Graham? Um, you know, for the right package, I think they make the move. Uh, but I don't think if they've, they've got other moves, they'll make first in order to deal with the cap issues before they, you know, before they would unload, you know, Kelsey for a box of used kicker balls. I mean, it's just, <laughs> yeah. I, I yeah don't, and I'm not I don't, looking I, at any, I, I'm, I am considering the fact that the Seahawks probably have to give up their first round pick at the very least. Yeah. I mean, and you know, maybe it's not even a first, you know, would the Seahawks two seconds, you know, if they sent the second that they got from the chiefs for Frank Clark and their own second back and sent a player along, could that get it done? I don't know. You know, is that something the Seahawks would consider? I don't know. And if they did take him on just because I, I didn't mean to dodge your question earlier, um, <laughs> if they did take him on his base salary, um, because his signing bonus of 1.968 million, that's prorated against the cap each season, that would go away. That would stay with Kansas City. So they'd have just under $4 million in dead money for him. It's actually $3.94 million. And then his base salary in 2020 would be $8 million. His base salary in 2021 would be $7.75 million. He's got 250000 in off-season workout bonuses, which are basically automatic for the player. I mean, they show up, they work out, and they get that money. And then he's got a million dollars per year in per game roster bonuses, um, just so that the team, you know, the team would have some savings if somebody got hurt or if he got hurt, had to go on IR, they could pay his replacement. So, mm-hmm. you know, it, it would be a, a completely reasonable cap. It'd be very similar to the, what the Seahawks were paying Jimmy Graham just five years later. Um, I don't see that trade happening. I don't think the Chiefs will move on from Kelsey, but somebody puts the right package on the table. Anyone's available. Well, moving forward, I, I, I'm curious what you think of with the situation the Seahawks are in. You know, and we've talked about how uh, it's going to be difficult for them to keep a guy like Clowney. If Eddie would be difficult to keep, it may even be difficult to keep George Fant at the number that the Seahawks are comfortable with. As, as you look at the roster and the guys who are free agents, if there were, if there were one guy that you say the Seahawks would be key for the Seahawks and considering the numbers as well, who, who are you looking at? I mean, if, if we're just going to go with one guy, if, I mean, uh, then I'm going to stay with Clowney. I mean, I know he's the biggest name one. I know he's the most expensive, um, but he's the guy who, you know, he's going to bring the, bring the big production. Uh, I have concerns personally, you know, he, he had microfracture surgery on his knee that doesn't age well. You know, I, I forget if he's five or four years removed from that, but it's, you know, it's something where he may not have the longest career in terms of defensive ends, defensive linemen. But in terms of impact players, helping the team, you know, not only make the postseason, but make it deep into the postseason like they we know they want to do and like we've seen them do in the past. He's the guy who's going to be the most impactful. And even though you're paying him the most money, I think he's the one, you know, from whom you get the most bang for your buck. That is a big concern for me, too, because you look back at his six years in the league now of those six years, he's only played a full 16 games one year in 2017 for Houston. Now he did have 14 uh, game seasons in 2016 and 2018, but only 11 games in 2019 or 13 games uh, 
I think total, but a couple of those games were injury games. And so uh, you you look at that and missing the first couple of years of his career in Houston, I, I do have some concerns of whether or not he can stay healthy. No, absolutely. And I don't think, I think he's, he's probably not, you know, as injury prone as, you know, fans were, fans believed and when they would make fun of him as having been, you know, taken early in the draft and was a bust and you know, he's, he's obviously far from a bust. He's an yeah. impact player. He's the type of guy that you look to get at the top of the draft. Um, he's just, you know, like, I mean, football is a brutal sport and you know, we just have to keep in mind that those, you know, those 13 game seasons and those 14 game seasons, that's average. That's what's to be expected. So it's, you know, when I look at it, when I look at his, you know, his career stats, it's kind of like, okay, yeah, no, he missed a couple seasons early in his career. Uh, but he's been consistently playing and playing as much as we expect someone to later on in the, his career. So I'd have no problem signing him to a deal. You know, it's the length of the deal and how, you know, you want to have the exits after two, three, four years, whatever it is, um, because, you know, he'll be 27 next season and mm-hmm. he's got the type of surgery he had on his knee. It's not a guarantee, but there is definitely a connection between microfracture surgery and degeneration of the knee, you know, down the road, that might be 10, 20 years down the road. So it's not something that is, you know, that's, that you're absolutely worried about, Oh my God, his leg's going to fall off in 2020 where you, you know, don't sign him at all. Um, but you have to be very wary of it. I mean, just like we saw with the Rams and Gurley, he's only five, six years removed from his ACL repair and degeneration of the knee following ACL repair is absolutely not uncommon. It doesn't happen all the time, but it's not uncommon. And now they're, the Rams are dealing with it and they just gave them a massive contract. So they know what it's like to deal with, uh, you're giving a player a contract who, who may, you know, might have that kind of issue pop up down the road. And that's obviously the last thing we want to see, you know, the Seahawks burdened with is because, you know, we talked earlier about Russell Wilson potentially burdening the Seahawks with, you know, his cap number, but it's not like the Seahawks didn't have 18 million in dead money between Doug Baldwin, who retired and Cam Chancellor, who was forced into retirement by injury. I mean, that's, you know, it's half a dozen to one, six to the other. You get $20 million extra either way. You know what I mean? Right. Yeah. And with the Seahawks, I feel like this is the least amount of dead money they've had in an offseason. Just, I think, a couple of rookies like Gary Jennings, uh, his salary counting toward the cap. And I, I think the one other uh, rookie player who who didn't make the team. So, yeah, very little dead money for the Seahawks in this offseason. And uh, before we go, I'm curious about projecting out future years because with the, with the way that uh, rookie contracts are structured, there's certain players now who are going to have the ability to sign long-term deals this offseason. Guys like Shaquille Griffin, Chris Carson, Puna Ford going into their final year of their rookie contract. Any of those guys that you see, well, I guess Puna Ford, he'll, he would be a restricted free agent, so he, he may not uh, be one of those guys that the Seahawks would look at. But uh, of, of the other guys out there, you think there's any that they consider signing long-term this offseason? Uh, you know, I think I won't be surprised at all if we see an extension for Griffin in August during training camp. I won't be surprised at all if we see an extension for Carson during training camp. Ford, I would not be surprised uh, um, to see a even a two-year deal or a three-year deal, you know, or a, rather a, an extension, um, mm-hmm. you know, something small where they go to him and they say, look, you know, we're obviously going to, we're going to put a, you know, our plan right now is to put a second round tender on you next off season, assuming you play the way you, you've been playing. We'll give you, you know, let's 
cut that a little instead of giving you the three million in 2021 or whatever. Um, you know, here's 2.75. We'll guarantee it today. You sign now, uh, and then we'll we'll have the ability to keep you for five million or seven million or whatever it is. You know, in 2022. So I would not be surprised to see a a contract extension for Ford this offseason as well, simply because I mean they we've seen him play. He's impactful when he's on the field. He does everything they ask him to. Um, and you know, like, if you can lock him in and, you know, keep his salary cap hits low going forward while keeping him in the fold and letting him continue to develop, then I think that's something that they can do, you know, and he's probably, he'd probably be happy to take that money up front now, as opposed to waiting and potentially risking injury and then missing out on all of that. He's John Gilbert, field goals contributor. If people want to follow you on Twitter and if people want to look for some of your work coming up on fieldgoals.com, what are you working on in the in the next couple of weeks? Mostly it's going to be looking at the, who are the upcoming free agents? What are they going to be worth? How much are they going to be you know, expected to sign for going forward? Uh, you know, and then also we've got obviously the combine coming up at the end of the month. And so it'll be all kinds of digging into you know what's, you, what are the values we're looking for? What is the, I know Alistair has done fantastic work in the past in terms of the Seahawks draft board in getting you know, what, which Seahawks meet or which, excuse me, which prospects meet the measurables that the Seahawks look for at different positions. And then just kind of weeding through, you know, all of the data that gets dumped on us after the, <laughs> during the combine. And then that'll take us right into free agency, uh, which is obviously my wheelhouse. So. Be sure and tune in fieldgoals.com. Follow John on Twitter at John P. Gilbert NFL. Subscribe to this podcast if you haven't already, sbnation.com slash NFL podcasts. And if you're looking for more Seahawks talk, check out the latest episode of the Seahawkers podcast as Adam and I get into the Super Bowl, free agency, and areas of the Seahawks philosophy where they could make some adjustments in the offseason. Check it out, seahawkerspodcast.com. And if you have any draft questions, tweet at me at SeahawkersPod. I'll be joined by Rob Staten next week to talk draft. Until then, go Hawks. Go Hawks.